Hello, and welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast about design impact from Design Museum Everywhere. It's Thursday, October 22nd, 2020. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of the museum. This week, we have a very important topic. We'll be discussing how designers can infuse equity into the design of the built environment. As a white host, I know I'm not an expert in this space, not even close, and we all have a lot to learn. That's why I love the format of this podcast. We have two experts joining us today. I'll mainly listen, and we'll all learn together. Our guest co-host today is Atiana Cordova. She's an urban designer and founder of Waterblock, an urban design and creative studio based in New Orleans. She also has Waterblock Kids, which is an educational component of Waterblock. So good. Atiana has built her whole professional practice advancing racial and environmental justice in the built environment. Our special guest is Jason Pugh. He's an associate project architect and urban designer at Gensler in Chicago. He's also the incoming president of NOMA, the National Organization of Minority Architects. So can't wait to hear from Jason and hear Atiana and Jason's conversation. Plus, as always, we'll share a weekly dose of good design. Before we dive in with Atiana and Jason, some news from the Design Museum. We're looking ahead to our next special virtual event. Our Workplace Innovation Summit is coming up on December 7th through 11th. Since we can't really have our typical one-day conference, we're instead featuring five days of thought leadership around the future of how and where we work, and it'll all be virtual. So much has changed around the workplace because of the pandemic. There's a lot to learn, a lot to discuss, as we all try to figure out what our workplace strategy is going to be during these COVID times and what comes after. We have an amazing group of presenters and workshop facilitators on tap. Check it out on our website and get your tickets. Our pre-sale ticket pricing ends tomorrow, so be sure to take advantage of that. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org. Okay, with that, we're on to this week's topic. Folks, we're obviously in the middle of a viral pandemic with COVID-19. We've also been in a racial inequity pandemic for centuries that cuts across every aspect of life for everyone, the impacts of which are felt mainly by communities of color in the form of racism, inaccessibility of resources, and historic underinvestment. This, of course, spills into the built environment, where for centuries the design of our cities, neighborhoods, and public spaces has added to and truly made physical this racial injustice. When designers create the built environment in collaboration with real estate developers and civic leaders, every design element sends a signal about what a space is for and who it's for, and too often urban designs exclude rather than include. So designing the built environment needs to change so that our communities, neighborhoods, and resources are accessible and shared by all now and into the future because designs for the built environment usually last a very long time. We're so lucky today that we have Atiana Cordova as our expert guest co-host. She's a native of New Orleans, an urban designer and founder of Waterblock and Waterblock Kids, where she works to advance racial and environmental justice in the built environment through design, community-driven practices, and planning. She was chosen for C40's Women for Climate cohort for her commitment to decentralizing design and environmental practice. Atiana, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam, for the, the probably the best brief introduction I've ever gotten. <laughs> so I appreciate the brevity. Oh, my, my but pleasure. But thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited uh, for this conversation. So excited. Thanks for being here. So much to talk about on this topic. And um, But I want to hear all about your work and about Waterblock. But first, can you help us better understand the need to infuse racial equity and in thinking about design in the built environment? 
Sure. Yeah. Let's jump right on that's, in. That's the that's the big question. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned in the intro, design is connected to literally every single thing around us, whether it's our transportation, whether it's our housing, whether it's our school systems, whether it's literally you name it, design is connected to it in every single way. And in that same token, for every injustice, design is connected to that as well, because right. those injustices are happening in our built environment. And that built environment is made by designers. People are making those decisions intentionally. Um, and those decisions have impacts on communities at the end of the day. And more often than not, they have harmful impacts on black communities and other communities of color. So yeah. as you mentioned, design is everywhere, literally. And all those decisions have impacts on people. Yeah, definitely. It can feel, I mean, just so huge, right? Because it is really everywhere. I wonder if we can get specific and some examples of how you know, racism manifests in the design of the built environment again like as as a white man it's as it may be tough for me in, in my lens to see it but i know that you're looking at this stuff constantly can you share some examples sure i'll take to social media you know in recent weeks months during this COVID 19 season that we've been in we've seen a lot of you probably seen them the karen memes have yeah, you heard yeah. of those so it's mm -hmm. like basically people calling the cops on black people just existing in public space mm -hmm. so those simple examples even though right now it's being seen as more like a comical twist to it you know with the hashtags on social media but the simple idea that if you're a black person you can't simply walk your dog you can't simply right. be at the park barbecuing with your family and friends you can't simply just breathe and walk down the street without being harassed by police or just other citizens is just a clear example of how we're policed in our own built environment, even though our built environment should serve everyone. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just a clear cut example. And of course, we can go further into the police brutality events and whatnot. But just a simple example of someone walking down the street and having to worry about if a neighbor is going to say, oh, hey, this person doesn't look like they belong here or, hey, they're existing. Let me call the cops on them because I know the ties between, you know, the black community and the police. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, people yeah, know exactly what they're example. doing when they make those calls. It's ridiculous. Right. Yeah, when I, you know, my eyes have been definitely open to this as I see spaces that, like the physical actual form of them, the actual design, like a public park, I'm doing air quotes, mm -hmm. that's actually like elevated up by a step. And oh, by the way, it's near a luxury hotel and their restaurant like spills out onto this public park. And so you might think, is that a public park? Because every signal that it's sending from a design standpoint is saying like, okay, I don't belong unless I'm wealthy, unless I'm white. And gosh, those things just, they seem, it's our whole built environment. Again, it just seems so big and overwhelming. Right. Again, from my perspective, I can't even imagine from yours. But even with just that simple idea, that's really the core behind why Waterblock was started, which is the mm -hmm. Urban Design Studio. Yeah, tell us about I found it. it. Yeah, so Waterblock, in short, is the Urban Design Studio where we work to advance racial and environmental justice through community engagement, urban planning, and design. But with that, really the driving question is, how do we make design more accessible and decentralized mm -hmm. design practice? Because exactly that example that you're mentioning is if we have these quote unquote public spaces that are supposed to serve the entire public, but they're not, it begins to start the question, then who is that public? Right. Because it's not serving all of us. So how do we create design in a way going forward that starts to break down those barriers and really address access, the question of access, because that's totally. what it comes down to at the, at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And tell me about the um, Waterblock Kids. I know there's an educational component, which seems like foundational to this whole thing. 
Right. So, yeah, with Water Block Kids, in the same breath, it's all about how do we teach kids about design? So we're talking architecture, landscape architecture, urban planning and real estate, but through a social justice lens, because as mentioned earlier, everything is connected to design in some way. And I think it is a fundamental disservice for us not to be teaching our kids about design in primary education. So really what the focus of that program is really teaching kids in elementary school what design is and how it's connected to anything and everything around them. So whether they want to be a doctor eventually, whether they want to be whatever their career you know, focus is, if it's not design, it's still connected to what's happening in our built environment regardless. Totally. Yeah, so everyone really, is affected by it, right? So you want to have person. some say in it. <laughs> exactly. So really approaching it from a lens of, you know, everyone's a designer because we all have an experience with the built environment. So mm -hmm. really just trying to teach kids and reach them at a younger age because I know for myself, I don't know about you, but I wasn't exposed to design until high school. Yeah. And when I was exposed, I was like, wait, what? Like, how <laughs> have I never heard what an architect was? Like, this does not make sense. And I was introduced to it from the lens of Hurricane Katrina, so not a positive lens, but in the same sense, it's like, this is a huge disservice, and it's all by design that we're not teaching them this. So mm -hmm. trying to break that chain. Yeah, I mean, I can just see this world where like more people are aware of design and therefore like demanding good, equitable design. So I, I love the two sides of the coin that you're uh, working through. I think it's really smart. Thank you. Uh, I wonder, yeah, can you share like a recent project that uh, maybe either you've done or that you've seen that um, you think is characterized by this like focus on equity? And we haven't even gotten to the environmental justice <laughs> part that's also intertwined. Um, but yeah, any recent projects that are exciting? Yeah, so this past summer, we formally launched Water Black Kids. So prior to, we were doing, you know, school workshops and after-school programs. But given this COVID season that we're in, we completely moved virtual. So nice. we hosted our first virtual summer camp for kids. And it was just amazing just seeing the kids connect across the country and just talking about, one, what they're going through right now during this time. I mean, I think oftentimes we kind of exclude kids from the conversation of what's going on in the world, but they're watching and they're fully aware of what's happening you know, in their communities. So it was oh, yeah. great just to engage them where they were in this conversation to get their feelings about COVID to connect it to, you know, our school system and how design's connected to that. And these just different layers of their experience in the program. It was just, it was amazing. And I really just, I feed off those types of energies and that oh, type I of bet. curiosity. Yeah. But yeah. And then with water black, um, of course, like many people, a lot of our projects were delayed earlier on in the year, but we're finally getting the ball back rolling, which I'm excited about. So we're about to start a really great wetlands project here in the city dealing with stormwater management and how we um, you just think about water differently and really start to reduce some of that flooding that we see in our communities. So, yeah, we're excited. We have some great things about to come up. Yeah, that's so cool. It definitely seems like community is such a big part of what you do, like just researching some of your projects. Like it's not like I'm just like swooping in it's like you're really pulling people together which i think i mean that's the basis of design i think many designers have forgotten <laughs> well they were piece. never taught it let's yeah, be clear they the were problem. never taught it <laughs> which is a whole another conversation around education reform totally. because we're not teaching our designers in school how to do things differently either yeah the people aspect in the community section uh, notion and how important that is to design. I mean, it seems like it's huge in your work. should be huge in everyone's work. So yeah, with that part, it goes back to who are we designing for? Like all of these design decisions have an impact on people at the end of the day. So it was important when I started Waterblock that that was a central part of our work. It's like, how do we connect with community and meet people where they are so that they see themselves as designers? Because if you have an experience with the built environment, then you're just as much an expert as I am being in this role. 
So, and that's how I see it. I don't see it as a hierarchy system where it's like, because I went to school for architecture or, you know, disaster planning that I'm up here and you're down there. It's more so we're both experiencing this thing, which is the built environment. So now how do we come together mm -hmm. to make this thing great for all of us? Yeah. So. Oh, I love it. I wish all designers thought that way. Maybe if we're both successful, that'll happen. Because <laughs> it just One seems so critical. One day at a time. <laughs> yeah, they say eat the elephant with a spoon. One day yeah. at a time. <laughs> I love it. Let's get in. You know, you mentioned Katrina um, and that, that kind of connection between, you know, racial and environmental justice seems so important in your work and so important for us as a society. Can you help us make that connection again? Because I know you're, you're working in that space. Wait, can you repeat the question? Just to make sure I'm clear. Yeah, help us dig into that connection between racial and environmental justice mm -hmm. in design in particular. Recently, I did a feature with NBCLX for the Hurricane Katrina anniversary because mm. this year marked the 15 year since it happened in 2005. And they asked a similar question. And with that, it's when we think about one, the environmental conditions in our neighborhoods, they're not even, they're not evenly dispersed. One community is not dealing with the same um, environmental conditions as another. It's not as if we walk into our neighborhoods and then all of us have these beautiful spaces and places. That's just not the reality. And really, when we dig into it, we can look at history and see why that's the case. So I always use the redlining example because that's a term that some people have heard. They might not know the just the breadth of what that word means. But with redlining, what it did was it was a policy that was initiated around the 1930s, which really racially segregated American cities. And even more so, it denied home ownership opportunities to black families who were seeking loans through banks and everything else. And there's a whole other host of you know, things that came out of those policies. But with that, it really determined that if you're black, you live here. If you're white, you live there. Mm -hmm. And when we make those type of decisions about what about our built environment, you start to see where resources are being allocated based on who lives where as well. So going even further to today, when we think about the environmental health conditions, so for instance, with COVID, a lot of people were mandated to stay at home because we're trying to you know, contain the virus and stop the spread. But if you're living in an environment which already has environmental toxins, such as, for instance, here in New Orleans, we have a neighborhood called Gordon Plaza, and they're living on toxic soil. Literally, mm -hmm. for generations, their family members have been dying because the city sold them land on top of toxic soil. And if you're telling these people to stay I'm sorry, if it wasn't clear, it's the black community. Yeah, yeah no, thanks. Okay, just, just being you know, explicit. But yeah, if please. But if you're telling groups of people to stay home because of COVID and they're already dealing and living in an environment that's already full of toxins, you're just furthering the environmental racism that they're already right. enduring when yeah. you know these current conditions come up. So really, once again, what's happening in our built environment is not evenly dispersed. Everyone doesn't have a positive experience. And the more and more we go through these injustices that happen, it just continues to layer those issues and deepen the impact that it's having on black communities and other communities of color. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Uh, it's tough. Yeah. I think that's the right. It's, it's not evenly distributed. And so you even see the effects of things like climate change, right? Are on, you know, historically underinvested communities are feeling the effects first, right? Wealthy communities, you know, uh, white communities are shielded for now. Mm -hmm. And it's just, yeah, it's not the way it should be. Right. Last question, what's your advice for other designers uh, that might want to be making some impact in you know, using design to further racial and environmental justice? That's a good question. 
Um, I was just talking to one of my like colleagues earlier, right before this call, because she just was thinking about just like, you know, I want to do so much. Like, where should I go? Like, what should I do? And honestly, I tell everyone the same thing. Tap in where your passion lies. Like, mm -hmm. if there's something that you feel passionate about that you want to see differently, that is enough of a reason to move forward and investigate it. And that's exactly what happened, you know, with my journey to where I am today is going through Hurricane Katrina. I knew coming back home that things didn't feel right. And it wasn't fair that black people were being pushed out of the city literally right. because they didn't have the monies either to return because they weren't getting the recovery dollars or because their neighborhood literally was being bought up by people who didn't live there. So, you know, with that, that was enough to say, you know what? I want to do something different about this. It's not yeah. enough just to complain. You can either complain or you can change things. And I would say run towards what pisses you off. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what my mom used to tell me when I was younger. Those things, And that's really a lot of times where your passion lies. And you can totally. really be a part of changing things for the future. So I know that is a piece of advice I often give people. And if that's not enough to make you want to change things, I don't know what to tell you. That's right. <laughs> but, yeah. But start there and well, see you know, what are the things that... <laughs> yeah, you're certainly doing it. And it's I commend you. It's it's very awesome. Keep it up. <laughs> we, we need it. your work for sure. <laughs> so thank you, Atiana. We really appreciate you being on the show and sharing your perspective and expertise. Thanks, Sam. Yeah. I appreciate y'all creating this space and allowing us to just share our perspective. Oh, Definitely appreciate absolutely. it. Absolutely. Listeners, to learn more about Atiana's work at Waterblock and Waterblock Kids, check out their websites. Visit waterblockglobal.com and waterblockkids.com and check them out on social media at waterblockglobal and at waterblockkids. And Atiana, please stay with us and we'll bring Jason Pugh into the conversation after a quick break. Join us December 7th through 11th for our fifth annual Workplace Innovation Summit, an immersive five-day virtual event experience focused on the future of how and where we work. At the Workplace Innovation Summit, you'll learn directly from the experts and become an expert yourself by engaging in meaningful conversations to develop your during and post-COVID workplace strategy. Topics include augmenting existing spaces, wellness and workplace culture, equity in the workplace, collaborative technology, and more. You'll experience keynote presentations, interactive workshops, and virtual networking opportunities. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org to learn more. Let's connect, reflect, reform, and shape what happens next in the workplace at the 2020 Workplace Innovation Summit. Attend virtually from anywhere in the world December 7th through 11th. Get your tickets today at designmuseumeverywhere.org. And we're back, and we'll continue our conversation on designing equity in the built environment with our special guest. Jason Pugh is a licensed architect and certified planner with over 15 years of experience serving both the public and private sector. His architectural and urban design portfolio includes both domestic and foreign projects at various scales. Jason's favorite projects include those which afford opportunities to directly engage with end users and extend the community. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, he's the incoming president of the National Organization of Minority Architects, or NOMA. Jason, welcome to the show. Sam, thank you. Uh, happy to be here. Oh, so excited to have you. Thank you. To start, I wonder if you could share your journey into architecture and, and what your focus, you know, what your work is focused on right now. Sure. So um, my journey into architecture, I, I found architecture at a very, very early age. Um, ironically, so growing up, I was very involved with the visual arts and um, was born and raised in Denver, Colorado and, and uh, participated in various um, 
design focused uh, art focused programs in middle school and high school and had a, some amazing mentors that were around me who kind of helped me and guided me and you know taught me different mediums and um, I was kind of getting to a point where I was I don't want to pat myself on the back but I was fairly successful as a as a youth artist um, and was really trying to just understand what my trajectory was and what, what my next steps were. And looking at the mentors around me, all of them amazingly accomplished artists, but a lot of them feeling the, the typical cliche starving artist label, um, wanted to find something that was still connected to art. I could utilize my artistic skill sets, but there was a clear path for me to take. It was something that I had a respected uh, profession, uh, clear timeline in terms of school and, uh, you know, becoming a professional. And that was architecture. And mm -hmm. I believe it was an art teacher actually that uh, maybe recommended and, and dropped architecture, um, you know, planted that seed at a very, very early age. But um, for whatever reason, it stuck. And <laughs> uh, despite not knowing any architects growing up, um, especially any black minority architects in Denver. So, but for whatever reason, it stuck and um, just kind of moved forward from there. So, I attended undergraduate school at Howard University in Washington, D.C., and, um, and then immediately upon graduating from Howard, uh, went to Columbia University in New York, where I got a master's degree in architecture and urban design. Hmm. So fast forward a few years later, moved to Chicago, and, and I've been here now for about 13 years and, and got reengaged with, with NOMA and um, and. And, and since that time, I've you know spent a lot of time both as, as a professional, uh, both architect and urban designer, kind of jumping back and forth, working on community master planning projects. And in some nice. unique particular cases, finding opportunities to take that on through uh, uh, construction uh, documentation. Um, and then also just very, very passionate and um, active when it has come to both NOMA and the ACE Mentorship Program. Just, oh, it's a great program. You know, trying to, oh, it's an amazing program. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, just, uh, you know, with the focus on inspiring and, and guiding the next generation. So that's awesome. Let's just give a shout out to all the mentors that helped all of us <laughs> oh, get goodness. into design. And it sounds like you're full circle now mentoring others, which is phenomenal. That's great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Any recent projects or current projects you're excited about that you're working on in the architecture space? Sure. So, you know, as you kind of mentioned in my bio, I think, you know, my favorite projects are the ones that I get opportunities to directly engage with the community residents, the end users, the stakeholders, um, and of course the client, the developers and whatnot, and, and really just trying to kind of create a, a collective uh, voice and ownership across the board. Mm. So um, those community master plan projects, there's a few in particular that I've been blessed and, and fortunate to work on um, in my in my time uh, with Ginzer, uh, working as part of their uh, planning and urban design studio. They, um, the client itself uh, for a couple projects has been the Chicago Housing Authority. And mm. we've uh, worked on a few community-based master plan projects for some former Chicago housing, uh, public housing sites. So a few months ago we lost the late John Lewis, and I know the world mourned that loss just because of his leadership during the civil rights movement, but also his role as a congressman. And so one of his infamous quotes, I'm gonna just read it out loud and then I'm gonna ask a question to go along with it, but do not get lost in a sea of despair. Be hopeful, be optimistic. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week or a month or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. 
Never ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. So just reflecting on the words of John Lewis, I want to know what good trouble are you getting into these days, if any? <laughs> well, um, you know, uh, to be honest, I, I suppose during, you know, crazy, unprecedented times like these, I'm, I'm actually trying to stay out of trouble <laughs> if I can help it, <laughs> good or bad. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, this this year has been crazy and. Uh, you know, I'm talking one hit after another crazy. And like most of you, um, I was caught flat-footed and I've just been trying hard to gather myself, stay grounded and focused on what's truly important. And, you know, in which during during these times is just health, family and our extended communities. But um, to be more direct and I guess, you know, answer your question in the spirit of John Lewis and good trouble, um, I suppose I've I've used this strange moment in time that we're in to turn up the spotlight and speak more truth to power uh, when the opportunity presents itself. And, you know, when this, of course, within the long established constructs of the architectural design industry, just to highlight the inequities within the profession that have plagued us for decades um, and have long been ignored. So, you know, I've engaged, um, spent a lot of time engaging in just direct dialogue with allied organizations and, and I've had some really tough conversations with my peers and, and, and leaders from different organizations and firms about, you know, ways we can move the needle um, mm -hmm. in a meaningful and impactful way and uh, diversify the face of architecture, which to date has remained a white male dominated profession. Yeah, I'm curious to know, so with this time that we're in, with everyone, it sounds like everyone's preaching hashtag equity in this moment right now. How are you distilling between those organizations that have a true intention with wanting to see, you know, change and do difference? Like, how are you deciding what organizations to work with versus those who are just using this moment as like marketing stunts or um, the latter? Well, it, it, it's funny on a lot of different um panels and conversations and, and discussions that I've been a part of in interviews, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, those have become watered down industry buzzwords. Um, and I'm very blunt and, and, and direct about that. I mean, like to your point, you see it on marketing publications for firms and, um, you know, when you engage in certain conversations and you connect with different, different firms, um, you know, potential sponsors, partners, I think, you know, as time goes on and things shake out, um, Everyone's cards are, are, I think, eventually revealed. And so we're at this moment where, you know, we're in a, in a heightened crisis in, in a dual uh, crisis, both um, as it relates to the pandemic, but also just the social climate and, and everything that, that we're dealing with as, as it relates to equity, uh, diversity um, and inclusion. And, you know, we are engaging in those discussions and, and we're open to bringing on new partners as long as they're in, uh, in true support of the mission. As you alluded to, like during this time, it is, it is easy for a lot of people to hop on this bandwagon of the hashtag equity, you know, um, mindset. But at the end of the day, those true colors reveal themselves in due time. Mm -hmm. So also just thinking about, well, one, congratulations on your incoming role as the NOMA president. I'll also be taking on a new role within the organization as the university liaison for the South region. So excited about working under your leadership that's right and yeah. we're, we're excited to have you on board actually in this moment could you share more about noma because i think you know many of our listeners might not know what it is sure so um noma the national organization of minority architects um is a nonprofit organization it was founded um almost 50 years ago in 1971 by 12 african-american architects who met for the first time 
at an AIA conference um, in Detroit. And, you know, it was formed for the purpose of minimizing the effect of racism on our profession and, and today serves as a safe haven for architects of all origins who seek inclusion in the design industry. Mm-hmm. We, um, we continue to advocate for increased licensure of African-American architects, um, as well as those from underrepresented backgrounds and communities. We all know architects and planners are critical piece of the puzzle, and, and, and we have influence and control over the, over the, the built environment and uh, design and, and how we live, work, and play. And so it's, it's critically important that we have representation across the board as we're starting to address uh, some of these inequities and, and design issues that are plaguing our communities. Yes. Yeah, so as the incoming NOMA president, so what are you most looking forward to? You know, I, I think everyone within NOMA would agree that Kim, Kimberly Dowdell, uh, the current national NOMA president, and, um, you know, she has done an amazing job steering the ship yes. and leading this great organization during one of the most difficult and unprecedented moments in the history of our country. And, you know, I acknowledge that I have some mighty large shoes to fill. <laughs> My focus is going to be value. I want there to be inherent value for our members and our partners to be a part of NOMA. So I'm curious to know also, do you have an agenda or a list of goals or even just focus areas that you want to tackle as you move into this leadership position as well? I do. At least with Kim, the current NOMA platform for her administration in 2019 and and 2020 was all in for NOMA, right? And all was or is an acronym for Access Leadership and Legacy. And it was it was created uh, by Kim and her team, you know, to just to promote more diversity and accessibility, um, create new leaders amongst our ranks, and and reinforce Noma's uh, rich history. So, and th- and then also the acronym all is used as a sign of inclusivity, you know, a signal to all that we are stronger together than divided. You know, we're not just a you know what's labeled as a black organization. You know, we are focused on being inclusive with that mission. We are focused on being inclusive with those targets. Um, And we recognize that we need help from all people in the industry to make an impact and move the needle forward during these, uh, this pivotal uh, moment. So one of my goals for the next two years um, as the next NOMA president is to build upon these same ideologies, uh, the great work and progress that Kim and, and the current national board and staff have accomplished uh, during her tremendously impactful administration. And, and together, Kim and I, you know, we've worked lockstep over the last year to ensure that the new programs created during her administration will continue on and be expanded in creative ways and, and just try to find ways to meet the needs of our, our valued members and reinforce the value of being a part of NOMA. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to, and that's an understatement in itself as well, just you continuing out these, you know, the, these torches that have been passed down throughout the generations. And I'm just excited to see what you bring to the table also. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we are, you know, so everyone has asked me, so what's your platform? And I say, <laughs> well, I, you know, we're still all in, you know, I, right. I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't want everyone to think that, that doesn't we're deviating change. from the all in platform. Right. Um, but there, I, I will say that there will be an expanded platform that's uh, focused on you know, uh, education, elevation, and empowerment. So mm-hmm. what you'll see, and, you know, we're still kind of baking through it is the educational piece within these three buckets, the educational piece, um, will tie into a rebranding and expansion of project pipeline. 
So for most people, when they hear Project Pipeline, um, as it's uh, associated with NOMA, they immediately think of our architectural summer camps that take place, um, you know, for middle school students and high school students. Um, one of the things that I plan on doing is um, using some of the same uh, tactics and strategies that we employed here in Chicago for INOMA, which have worked, I mean, and, and resulted in us, you know, having for the last few years, the largest project pipeline architectural summer camp in the country. I want to try to expand some of those and utilize those playbooks for our other chapters. So when I talk about rebranding and expanding project pipeline, I, I want us to deviate a little bit away from only referring to it as a architectural summer camp. And I want it to be this overarching umbrella that encompasses any and all programming all the way from K through 12, all the way through licensure. Mm -hmm. So everything kind of falls underneath the project pipeline uh, umbrella, right? Because again, it's about creating this pipeline. So there needs to be very tactful programming for introductory camps for young students in middle school, more partnership and, and connection and relationships with the uh, high school students, with allied organizations like ACE and, and, and a few other national entities more infrastructure support, scholarships, uh, resources for our NOMAS students. And then when the students get out of uh, college and become young professionals, you know, whatever it takes, uh, any type of uh, resources, uh, you know, and, and programming that we need to get these young professionals licensed. So in my mind, that's pipeline, mm -hmm. you know, all the way from the start to finish. And so and I, and I want that to be just a, a universal branding that'll happen across the country. Another piece under the ed, uh, education. So I I believe I'm, I'm one of the most recent, well, I think the last NOMA president that was a, that was an alumni of an HBCU might've been Kathy mm -hmm. Dixon. And she was uh, several uh, presidential terms ago, presidential administrations ago. So with me being, you know, the incoming president and having such strong ties um, and, and being a proud alumni of an HBCU and Howard University, I want to see us uh, devote a little bit more uh, focused attention and resources to our HBCUs. Um, I think that that relationship could most certainly be stronger. NOMA could definitely be uh, a pivotal part in, in leading that charge. And so there's, there's, there's two things that I've kind of been floating out there and working on with my team. One is the, the very first thing will be a, a creation of an HBCU advisory board. And it's going to be made up of, I want representation from all of the seven HBCU schools with architecture programs, but it'll be made up of deans, faculty, current mm. students, and alumni. And HBCU adoption program. And, and this is something that I've kind of been thinking through as well, just you know, with my own time working at you know, large global firms like HOK and now Gensler. And, and within this, I want to, within the HBCU adoption program, I want to work with multiple medium and large size firms in various cities throughout the South and the, and the East Coast and connect them with uh, the closest HBCUs. So together, um, these firms can collectively adopt a program, adopt Great a school, idea. and and support these architectural programs and provide more direct opportunities to the students. Mm -hmm. And so, Atiana, you as the you know the, the <laughs> Southern University liaison, I'll be working with you closely on this. Uh, you know to to really get this program off the ground because the student piece is going to be really, really critical. Thank you both. Thanks for a great conversation. Great questions, Atiana and Jason. Thanks for sharing your thought leadership with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. 
Yeah, yeah listeners. Same. Check out Jason's and the team at Gensler's work across many sectors of design, including architecture and the built environment. Visit Gensler.com. And I'll do another plug for Noma. Be sure to check out the National Organization of Minority Architects. They have some great resources and events. There's chapters across the country. Visit their website, noma.net. Now it's time for our weekly dose of good design, where we each share an example of good design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I will kick things off. This week, I found a really cool graphic design project on Instagram, and I'm just constantly scrolling Instagram. Uh, it's by an Argentinian graphic designer. Her name is Luli Kabuti, who now lives in Barcelona. Her project is called Once Upon a Time, but upon is spelled A-P-P-O-N because it's all about apps. So basically, she's taken the smartphone apps that we all know and love, like Gmail, Spotify, Slack, Netflix, et cetera, et cetera, and she reimagines them for what they would be in the 1980s. So I'm a child of the 80s, so I love this. So a couple examples, let's take Netflix. She created a graphic where the Netflix logo is the case for the VHS tape, a lot of fun. Apple iCloud, the logo is on the sticker for the 3.5 inch floppy disk. Spotify is on a cassette tape. Facebook is an actual photo album. Pinterest is a bulletin board and Instagram is a branded roll of film. So hopefully you're getting the idea here. If it sounds like I'm speaking a foreign language, that means you were probably born sometime after the year 2000. Uh, these graphics are impeccably handled, very simple, very clean, just enough detail and the color is very, very handled very well uh, based on the brand. And they look, they're all photorealistic. They all look totally real. So Luli said in an interview that each graphic takes 30 minutes to three hours, depending on the complexity. So for example, for LinkedIn, it's an entire newspaper like unfolded and it's a job listing and all the job listings are in there. So she wrote all those job listings. Uh, she said she really enjoyed looking back and thinking about each concept. They're all very fun. And we'll post a link to her Behance portfolio uh, where you can see them all. Cool. All right. Atiana, you are up. Yes. Yeah, so my design highlight is I'm probably breaking the rules with this one a little bit of Sam, but it's okay. It's all you know, good. I'm going to acknowledge troublemaker. It's all good. <laughs> but I want to give a shout out to just all the designers who are working towards a more just and liberated future. And even more so the black women designers out there who are just doing their thing and holding this thing down. And even more so Pascal Sablon. So I was honored to be a guest on her Instagram page for Beyond the Built where she elevates just the voice of diverse designers and the work that we're doing and our impact in the design industry. So we just need more elevation of our stories and our living history, because as Jason mentioned, there's not that many of us and those numbers have been stagnant for quite some time now, but there are those of us who are out here doing the work to increase that representation. So I just want to give a special shout out to all those designers who are working towards that same goal. Yeah, we are needed. Great. Yeah, absolutely. And Pascal, she's crushing it she's doing such amazing yes work, so. amazing yeah we'll be sure to post a link to her stuff um awesome thank you and thank you so much for joining us today no worries thank you for having me sam oh it was a blast that's our show again i want to thank atiana cordova and jason Pugh for joining us and sharing their knowledge and their perspective that was a great conversation as always we'll post links for some of the things we discussed on our episode page visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast while you're there be sure to grab your pre-sale tickets for our Workplace Innovation Summit coming up December 7th through 11th. With the pre-sale tickets, you can save a bunch of dough, 
So be sure to take advantage of that. The summit's gonna be awesome. I'm telling you, you won't wanna miss it. There's just so much to talk about around workplace right now. Also, find us on social media and say hello. We always love hearing from you and hearing your ideas for future episodes. We'll be doing some live podcast episode recordings in December as part of the summit. So stay tuned to social media for those announcements. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. And you can find us on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. Super easy to find us there. Just search Design Museum Everywhere. Oh, and be sure to subscribe to this podcast. It's so nice to share the show every Thursday with you all. Uh, join us, subscribe. You'll always get the latest episode in your feed. Share it with your friends, your family. Uh, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was written and edited by me, Sam Aquilano, and produced by Ryan Flom. We're also edited by Amanda Martinez. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. You know our favorite color is orange, just like water block orange. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thank you for joining us and we'll talk to you next time.